Hello and welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Simon Carley and today we're going to be talking about a subject which has cropped up a lot in the last few weeks when I've been going around the wards, when I've been going around the department. And many people at all levels actually, nurses, doctors, seniors, juniors in both, have been asking about uh, ventilation strategies and how we might have to get involved in the management of critical care patients in a way that we've not done before. And this is obviously because of coronavirus and COVID-19. We're expecting a huge expansion in intensive care beds in the UK. And it's obviously created a lot of anxiety. So I thought, who do I go and have a chat to? I know I'll go and speak to a friend and colleague, Sarah Thornton, who's head of the School of Anesthetics in the well, in this part of the world, shall we say. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Sarah Thornton. I work uh, at a hospital uh, north of Chester and um, a big district general hospital. Um, I work as an intensive care consultant, but I also do anaesthetics. So um, I have a foot in two camps. Yeah, and a long history of interest in emergencies as well. So yeah. this is an area which you've, you've been interested in for a long period of time. So we've not, we've not just invented it. And you sent across to me a couple of weeks ago. Now, actually, probably, gosh, time is expanding and shrinking at the moment. It's yeah. crazy. It's it was only a matter of a few years, a week ago. Yeah. You sent me almost like a dummy's guide to intensive care. And I, 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 it's not a dummy's guide. It's a really, really good guide, mm-hmm. but aimed at people who don't normally do intensive care medicine. Yeah, it's it was produced by one of my colleagues who um JP Lomas and uh, it's just a a quick guide to what to do with no frills just this is what you do. Yeah, so I've got a copy of that we'll put it up on the website and I've also got a couple of copies from other units around the country because I think this is something that every intensive care should be doing now mm-hmm. before and you know it might be that this doesn't happen it may be that you are going to just run an expansion plan for staff, which is only going to involve people who are already trained in anaesthesia or and or intensive care. Mm. And that's all you'll need. But I don't know, Sarah, what, what's your feeling? Do you think we're going to have to include other people? Absolutely. I mean, I think because the capacity in normal intensive care units is going to be exceeded, we're going to be ventilating in areas where with and using um, uh, nursing and medical staff who don't normally ventilate people. So it's essential that we give them some basic guidance on how to do that safely. Um, of course, that we as intensivists will be overseeing that process, but a lot of them are quite anxious, understandably, because the last time they did any intensive care was as trainees. And these are consultants who've been consultants for many years, who obviously ventilate people quite routinely in theatres for anaesthetics, but that have not ventilated a patient with um, severe ARDS for, for many years. So they want to do it right uh, and uh, as professionals feel the need to uh, to obviously gain the knowledge to do that. Because that's the clinical picture that we're expecting and that's certainly the clinical picture that we're seeing coming through the door now in Verchester mm-hmm. as things are starting to ramp up. We're seeing people of all ages who are coming in deeply hypoxic, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply hypoxic with um, ground glass opacities across the chest mm-hmm. um, and requiring actually quite quite urgent, I think probably slightly faster than we thought, progression through to um, positive pressure ventilation um, via intubation. That, that's what we're seeing here at the moment. Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, because of the nature of um, spreading that disease to healthcare workers, we're, we're, our normal strategies for oxygenating these people are limited because we can't give them high flow nasal oxygen because that aerosolizes and we can't use NIV 
uh, at this point in time. So we we therefore have to have a very low threshold for intubating people early. Yeah, so that NIV, non-invasive ventilation, um, if you're not familiar with the term, are things like CPAP and BiPAP, mm-hmm. which are actually have been used quite a lot in Italy. Yeah. Um, speaking to Roberto uh, Constantini in one of the previous podcasts, and they're using that quite a lot there. But at the moment... My understanding is we're only doing that in the UK if you're doing it on intensive care itself in a negative pressure room, of which those are extremely limited. That's right. That's correct, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that situation is going to continue. I think we we may come to a point where we have to cohort patients on NIV in a a hot zone, but we're not there yet. Um, So for the moment, we're not doing that in the ED, for instance. Yes, that's right. I think I think that's until we exceed capacity and we then have to start looking at other strategies. At the moment, we have the ability to do to intubate and ventilate these patients. And that's the safest thing for the staff and for 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 us. Because, of course, once you're on a ventilator, you've got a nice filter in there. The patients in a closed circuit, they actually don't produce aerosolizing virus particles so that should actually be a safer place for them to be than if they're actually just breathing spontaneously absolutely and that's safer for the staff as well so in turn when you've got a number of patients in that situation then intubation and ventilation is actually um, the safest for the staff and also for the patient and for the other patients around them because we have to bear in mind we don't want to colonize people who aren't infected it does mean that the decision making that we're having to take place is slightly different. What I've found is that we don't have that intermediate step of non-invasive ventilation mm-hmm. from spontaneous NIV and then sort of stabilizing someone NIV and seeing how they're going and then moving to intubation. We're making the decision earlier, perhaps in the patient's clinical course, although some patients are, as I say, presenting an extremist, mm. in which case the decision is relatively straightforward. But it does mean that, and I think a lot of what we're going to be doing over the next few months is going to be an adjustment of how we've made our critical care ceilings of care and types of therapy decisions they are going to subtly change i think as this progresses things will change it's a constantly changing situation as 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 you know yeah we only get about three or four updates on the guidance a day now so mm. things are getting better it is getting better yeah <laughs> so, yeah it's a tricky time and i think that agility and that change is just inevitable and we just got to get with it mm. so taking you back to the idea of getting people who are coming onto the intensive care who've not been intensivists before, and yep. that's fine. They're very, very welcome, and it's fantastic. Mm. We've got to reassure people they will be looked after. They're not going to just be left in a room with a ventilator and a patient saying, crack on with it. There will be help. There will be guidance. That would never happen because of the way we work. It's intensive care, uh, very much similar to ED, has uh, is a, t- a complete team working arena. And so there's no, there is no leaving people in rooms with, with ventilators. We all work together because the patients have requirements to be rolled and, and so on. So there's all sorts of, there's not people left, people aren't left alone. But um, let's go back to the guide thing. So yeah. we'll put this up again. If you, it, it might be worth if people are listening, if you want to print this off or have a look at it on a screen, that'd be helpful. And we'll just talk through some of the interesting things okay. here. I'm not going to go through it all, but I think there's a few things that we need to pick out here. At the beginning, sort of initial management about these patients, then there's some sort of general level stuff. But pick out that all of these patients are going to be discussed with the consultant intensivist prior to intubation. That's that's a given, I think. There's going to be some difficult decisions to make and you need senior people putting in there. The second one was about using PPE for aerosol generating procedures. Yeah, And I know you've done a lot of work about how to 
manage the intubation phase, which is one of the aerosol generating procedures. You've done yeah. quite a lot of simulation and training on that already. Yeah, so we we've been running. I think as every every theatre suite in in the country has been running um, sim sims uh, in uh, on how to do this safely. The the key things is obviously to um, minimise the flows that you've got going in. So when the patient arrives, um, they will potentially only be on six litres of oxygen. Uh, they will be wearing a face mask and you will then have to get them safely intubated in the shortest possible time and not bag them in between to minimise the thing. And obviously everybody who is in the room will be protected. The, so you should have one anaesthetist who is, in, who is in charge and they should be the most senior person who is likely to get the tube down the quickest. Uh, we're using video laryngoscopes routinely for every single patient because, again, that increases your chances of success first time. And you should be wearing you should be wearing your, all of your kit and nobody else should be in the room. So we've been running sims on intubating patients for routine surgery because, obviously, routine surgery, as in people with COVID, um, will, will come in requiring a fractured neck of femurs. A nurse from a nursing home might have a fractured neck of femur who might be COVID positive. And so we've been running sims to do that in in theatres for the last five days. So there's a couple of things on there that just just to, to have a quick thing. The yeah. first is that you mentioned the six litres. Now, that's yeah. quite important. And I don't think a lot of people have twigged this yet, particularly right. in, outside of, of anaesthetic stroke ICU. Okay, why is six litres important? Well, six litres has been shown to be as safe as can be in terms of generating an aerosol. So in the patients that we've been we've been intubating in these scenarios, we've been giving no more than six litres um, via either a face mask or by, via nasal cannula. If you turn the flows up higher than that, you will then generate some aerosol that will potentially increase the risk to your to the people who are intubating. So just to clarify about this and the, the next bit of the conversation around the six litres per minute, this is something which is taught locally. I'm not sure of the depth of the evidence around it. Certainly something Sarah believes and a lot of the anaesthetists locally to here do. The idea that if you have high flows, particularly if you're giving them through nasal cannula, you can generate aerosols. And I think there's some basis on that. It makes it seem to make a lot of sense. Whether or not there's a huge evidence base behind it, I'm not sure. And whether that affects how we're going to deal with patients coming into the ED, Again, I'm not entirely sure. What it does mean to me is that I think we need to be a little bit cautious if we're giving very high flows, particularly intranasally, that we could potentially generate aerosols. Within the recess room or within the respiratory recess rooms that we're using, it still means that we're going to take respiratory precautions there. I'll put up some links on the blog about where this uh, this idea came from, but just have a think about it yourself and, and make your own mind up about this one. Now, we've kind of got round, this is only in my hospital, we've felt that when we were extubating people who were having routine, well, not routine, but trauma surgery or emergency surgery who have COVID and they have the inevitable desaturation in in, in recovery, that we would obviously leave the six litres on, on the nasal cannula and maybe add another six litres with a it's sealed face mask on top just to get them through that initial period. But that's that's kind of not on the, this list. That was just an added. <laughs> no, that's fine. No, but it's a really interesting one. I think it's going to be a massive challenge for us. Some of the patients that we've had through, we're putting them into what we call the respiratory resource area. So yeah. a lot of the intubations are taking place in there. And that's a whole area which we're just now considering to be a hot zone in terms of aerosol generating procedures because these patients can't tolerate six liters that mm-hmm. they're coming in with sats of 50 on 15 liters yeah and so we just you've got to accept i think the key thing is 
the here that if you know about this it's great but if you don't know about it and you're merrily just squirting 15 liters down a patient you might not necessarily realize that you need the level 2 ppe which is the ffp3 mask the face shield or goggles and the proper gown and the and the and the gloves and i think it's a really key point and chatting to people in in our place unless you're an anesthetist or an intensivist i think that's brand new knowledge Right. Well, that 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 should be happening. And um, the other way to protect yourself is to to close their um, to put a sealed mask over their face. So, though CPAP isn't generally recommend, well, it is recommended in Italy, but we we will get to that point. Close, put it, creating CPAP by putting a closed sealed mask over someone's nose and mouth is a way of of giving them a higher level of oxygen and also protecting yourself because you are making it. You are sealing sealing that mask around their face and their nose and mouth and minimizing the spread the spread of the virus to you so again just to clarify because i think there's been a bit of confusion when we first put this out that the the flow rates here are what we're talking about when we're giving o's up the nose when we're giving high flow through nasal cannula that's particularly where we're worried about giving an aerosol generating procedure it's not so much about somebody just wearing a simple non-rebreathing face mask i hope that's a little bit clearer than it was on the original podcast and again i'll put some additional notes into the blog yeah and similarly during the the phase from um, induction of anesthesia through yeah. to paralysis and, and, and ventilation in some patients they're on such a knife edge that it's going to be really tricky. But I'm going to leave some of that to you clever anaesthetist people because <laughs> one of the great things is we have fantastic support from our anaesthetic teams in Verchester. Mm-hmm. And then they've got now running two crash teams for RSI and COVID patients. So we can get a very senior anaesthetist, a senior EAP mm-hmm. right down there um, to do that in all the ways that you describe, properly equipped and with the best person who's like to get it first time um, with with skill and panache because mm-hmm. panache is really important in medicine it's underrated <laughs> um right so get everything back so we only got to point two but this is all really interesting stuff it's really fantastic that we need to know about this sort of stuff so a couple of other things things which i'd forgotten from when i did intensive care avoid the right internal jugular line because um, mm-hmm. you might want to put a vascath um, in there or possibly even ecmo that's really good you're going to need art lines and um, central lines. We're saying that those should be put in on the ICU rather than put in in ectopic areas because you probably want to change them and actually people shouldn't be hanging around outside the ICU anyway. Yeah, yeah. but that will be that could be th- that could be theatres. Depends where we end up, doesn't it? Um, we might not be in intensive care. We might be in theatres. Well, that's what that's what the plan is. When we are, once we overspill, which um, will happen in the next couple of weeks, we will then be moving into doing them all in in theatres as our next our next overspill area. I'm sure your your Virchester is the same. In that yeah. the plan is when you when once we exceed our capacity, theatres will become mini intensive care units, and we we will be cohorting patients into into that. So we will have we've already got team leads of who's going to be looking after patients in which areas so yeah we've got a similar sort of plan which will allow us to develop several several and i mean several um, intensive care areas across the the organization i've got to say the amount of planning that's gone into this is absolutely fantastic i'm very impressed with what's got in place and i think we're going to go to somewhat something like three or four times our normal intensive care capability relatively rapidly and i believe with there are potential plans to go beyond that as well yeah yeah so, same here Keeping going, um, height and, and weight, because you need to know an ideal body weight. We'll come back to that. Um, there's an, a nice, interesting tip that you can measure from the olecranon to the styloid process of the ulna to calculate um, ventilator requirements. I'll come back to that. I'll put a link on it from Dave Jones. Okay. Um, consider alternative diagnosis, I think, is incredibly important. I think one of the potential mortality 
the, one of the potential mortalities of coronavirus is us presuming everything is coronavirus and treating it as that and missing something important like a big PE or a community-acquired pneumonia of bacterial origin. So I think that's a really important point. I'm glad that's right up front. Well, the, the other thing to bear in mind is that bacterial infection, secondary bacterial infection does occur quite, you know, not, not uncommonly in, in COVID. You're, they're immunocompromised in the same way that they are when they get a normal flu and are, are at high risk for getting a bacterial infection. So, um, yeah, that, that has to be on the list. So the data I've seen is around about 15 to 25% of these patients have got a coexisting bacterial yeah. infection on arrival. So we're treating them as community-acquired pneumonias. Yep. And there's an idea that we might step down antibiotics if their procalcitonin doesn't uh, rise after 48 hours. But again, you know, start early and come off. Mm. What else have we got? Um, sedate deeply with them mm-hmm. um, are down to a RAS of minus three to minus five mm-hmm. um, with propofol fentanyl plus omodionosomidazolam. And of course, the fentanyl is really important. So it's not just propofol. Mm-hmm. Pain relief is really important for these patients. Um, a map of 60 to 65 with noradrenaline that fits with the 65 trial, which we reviewed on the site not so long ago. Second line, just to add to that, the, the second line that's been recommended for inotropes is vasopressin. That's starting to, to come online. So most hospitals are starting to get um, a protocol if they haven't got one already on using vasopressin after noradrenaline. Okay. And then we're on to fluids. Um, try and enterally feed everybody. Mm-hmm. There's lots of evidence that that's good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you don't need to give maintenance IV fluids. And actually, I don't really like the term, but you intensivists like to run people dry, don't you? Yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Particularly in ARDS, because ARDS gets worse if you if you overload them. Um, and it's not even overloading, actually, normovolemia, because the lungs are abnormal, can lead to worsening of, of hypoxia. So, yeah, dry is, is the way to go, I'm afraid. Why don't you like the term? Um, running them dry. Why don't I like it dry? Because I don't think they're actually dry. I think they're normal. And when we did the big studies in sepsis, the people who said they were running them dry and the people who said they were running them wet kind of gave the same amount of fluid. That's been <laughs> okay. like a rise trial. So I, think it's, I think it's an intention, not a reality for some people. Okay, and, and, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, but it's yeah. a recognition that fluid, uh, that, that you can't be, you, you have to think about the fluid is, yeah. is the important thing there. I think it's a mindset and the mindset is really important. And I think we could, with, with people who are not used to this kind of management, I think we could generally sort of, we could, we could dump a lot of fluid into people unnecessarily. And remembering for people who don't do this on a regular basis, things like infusions produce fluid, things like propofol produces fat. Yeah. You know, there's lots of stuff which is going on, yeah. which you'll have to, people like dietitians and, and the nurses are brilliant at calculating your fluid balances and stuff. You need to keep account of a lot of things. And it's very easy to go positive in terms of your fluid requirements if you just prescribe a load of maintenance fluids. The ventilation stuff, the bit that actually bothers people is twiddling the knobs on the ventilator. Mm. That's the bit that they're most anxious about. I'm not sure it should be. No, not but... really, because they are basic, very basic ventilatory parameters, to be honest. And I think everyone yeah. should be reassured by the fact, actually, ventilators are not as complicated as you think they are. Air goes in, air goes out. That's right. But there is a little bit hard than that. So you've got this do no more harm, do no more harm ventilation strategy. So just yeah. just take us through that. There's, a, there's an initial step and then there's a sort of the, the baseline from where you're going to start and then adjust from there. So just take us through those 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 little bits. So I'm sure your audience know that, but that positive pressure ventilations is not good for you. So 
And I think the general public don't realise that. They sort of think that we're uh, life, it's, the ventilators are um, something magical that, that make people better and they don't. And what we have an obligation to reduce the morbidity associated with the fact that ventilators um, cause damage. So barotrauma is a huge problem and it massively increases mortality in ARDS. So using low tidal volumes is is essential and keeping your peak pressures below 30. So that's where the uh, measuring the ideal body mass is, is hugely important because you actually need to ventilate the person inside that is is the perfect size for their skeletal body and so that's why you need to measure them and use that what, what was that sternal notch to elbow no el- electronon to start i think the point you're making and if i can put it very bluntly is if you put if i put on 10 stone my lungs don't get any bigger that's right yeah yes thanks thanks for describing that uh, i was trying to be nice about it but yes so it, it's very very important you i ventilate your the perfect size lungs for you and if i if i gave you 10 stones um extras worth of lungs i would actually damage your lungs so that's the that's the key is finding out what that ideal body weight is and then you can set your ventilator exactly six mils per kilo for that person and then looking at um, delivering um, high levels of PEEP because PEEP actually improves oxygenation and doesn't cause as much barotrauma as high ventilatory pressures. So you've got to keep your PEEP pressures under 30. If you can't do that, uh, the consequence of that will probably be that you will have a higher CO2 because you might not be able to deliver a tidal volume, a minute volume ventilation that gives you a CO2 in the normal range. Um, you just have to tolerate that and accept that that's having a high CO2 hasn't doesn't really harm people uh, as long as the pH doesn't get too acidotic, in which case you then start to affect normal body homeostasis. And when you say when you're saying accepting, are you talking about accepting a pH of above 7.2, which will scare yeah. a lot of physicians? Absolutely. So you'll be looking at CO2s around 10 and 11 um, and tolerating them quite happily. And you will get a, the body will will actually compensate for that. After about 24, 48 hours, you'll start to see metabolic compensation for that respiratory acidosis that that you've had to create in order to protect their lungs. So so essentially, this sort of this is a high peep, low volume strategy. And peep for people who get confused, and I'm a simple emergency physician, peep is CPAP when you're intubated. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you just have pressure there all the time. So the pressure just holds the alveoli open and and sits there. uh, And then any pressure on top of that ventilates the lungs. So it's just a baseline pressure. So it's CPAP, exactly the same. People think it's different on ventilators, PEEP and CPAP. It's exactly the same. Why do we have different terms? I don't know. I think it, I find it, it really frustrates me because it, it confuses people unnecessarily. So just to get that into perspective, put some numbers on there and you put some some guides on there. For a 70 kilogram man, which is what mm-hmm. I should be but aren't, mm-hmm. um, it's 420 mils, which is actually yeah. quite a small volume. Yeah. And that does worry people when they look at that. They think that's just not enough tidal volume. We're very used as medics to sort of rounding things up to 500s or a litre and, and, and thinking that's OK. So, uh, you know, you'd think, oh, 500 for a lady and maybe 700 for a man. 10 per kilo is something that seems to be in, in people's heads for ventilating people. Um, so when you go down to small volumes like for, um, 420, it just seems wrong. But it's it's right. It's very definitely right. And actually, there's evidence out there that we should be doing that for 
for everybody from people having laparotomies. There's some evidence that that's actually using smaller tidal volumes reduces their morbidity afterwards. Okay. And there's a couple of other things here. So we're now starting to think about which knobs we're going to be twiddling on the ventilator or we're going to be sort of having a think about or understanding why we're doing things under direction. So the PEEP obviously is that sort of keeping the pressure open as much as possible all the time. Um, The tidal volume is how much you're going to go up and down. Now you can, depending on how your ventilator is set up, you can adjust how much volume you're going to get going in. Depends on whether you adjust the pressures or whether you just say, I'm just going to give you this volume. Most people will be using pressure control, and so you adjust the pressure to get to where you need to be. I yeah. guess. Well, there's um, two there's two two settings on the ventilator. So there's pressure control and there's volume control on most ventilators, and you can set the pressure at exactly that. And if that delivers the that, that tidal volume below thirty centimeters, then that's perfectly fine. But it doesn't matter whether you use pressure control or volume control, as long as the pressures are under 30 and the volume is correct for the patient so so the, the different settings don't really matter as long as you you achieve your goals and then if you can't then there are other things that you can do that you've mm. talked about on here so you can adjust things like the inspiratory expiratory ratio which might give you some but but you'd be speaking to an intensivist at that point and that that's what's really important to emphasize is that if you those are the settings you'd start them off on and then we'd all be talking about it and going right this is the one we need to turn over we need to prone and we'll we'll, we'll come back to that but but this the, the fine tuning is something I should be doing, not not someone who's not used to doing it, because you know it's a little bit fiddly. But it's, it, and it's nothing that, that people couldn't do. But it would be it's much more appropriate that you have a conversation with an intensivist about those patients. And we'll yeah, be doing not... daily ward rounds of these patients, going right. This is what to do. This is how we're going to set the ventilator. And you talk about the the sort of the ventilation prescription, because I'm not going to be twiddling these knobs in the in in that way. I I, I think. But I would be able to understand enough to say that this isn't working. I need to go and get help. Yes. And that's all we need you to do. Awesome. So if it doesn't work, what, is it, what are the strategies? I've heard quite a few strategies out from Italy and around the world about uh, you've got them on these basic settings and we're still struggling to oxygenate these patients. And there's a lot of talk of proning. Just explain proning to us. Well, so proning is very um, quite simply turning the patient on their front. It's, it doesn't, there's nothing complicated about it. It's just a bit fiddly because there's lot, they're attached to a lot of infusion pumps and a lot of um, tubing. So in, it, it has to be done with a great, a, a large number of people and um, with a, lot, a great deal of coordination. So we've been running proning workshops as part of the, the drills that we've been running um, and getting all of the um, theatre nurses um, to to know how to do this safely. We use a Cornish pasty method is what, what we're we call it so you literally put a sheet on either side of the patient and roll up the um either side of them so it looks like so they look a bit like a cornish pasty and and then you flip them over so you slide them across and tip them over onto their front and you leave them on their um, front for 12 to 16 hours before um, you turn them back again and that redistributes the the ventilation into different parts of the lungs and can improve oxygenation so i did intensive care when this was just kicking off yeah. And it was quite an unusual thing for us to do back then. But I think mm. it's it's not massively rare these days. I think it's no. something that you... Is it... Yeah. If we're struggling to oxygenate anybody, I mean, it's usually the ARDS patients, but no, it's not. It's something that's quite commonplace on, on intensive care now to prone somebody. It's just it's just fiddly and it, it requires lots of people, but otherwise it's it's quite an easy thing to do. Okay. So in ventilation, what I've got from you is 
there's a there's a strategy which is an evidence-based strategy it's a high peak low volume mm -hmm. accepting a hypercapnia type approach there are some limits about um what we're trying to achieve don't want to go above 30 centimeters of water it's lung protective and if that's not working we're going to prone it but at any time you're unsure it's going to be adjusted by an intensivist you can always talk to people the critical care nurses are also pretty good at this sort of thing as well absolutely but get advice get advice get advice don't mess with the ventilator unless you know what you're doing Sorry. good but if it was beeping at you do something about it. anyway <laughs> we'll come back to that so yeah, you need to learn which beeps are important yeah fine ongoing care and i i i thought this bit was really quite helpful in as well because i think to be honest i think how to manage the patient over sort of a 24-hour period is probably where we're going to be using people like me who are mm -hmm. coming in as novices mm -hmm. to sort of keep keep the patient running and this is all about reading through it. it's all about doing the basics well mm. to make sure that the patient has everything in place to do as well as they can mm. so things like the twice daily medical review absolutely and you've done a performer there of things to check mm. that just runs through the various different aspects of what we should be checking on every patient every day and i think that's quite common practice in intensive care anyway these days yeah, absolutely. And there's there's care bundles related to to ventilation, like keeping the patient up at a certain uh, at thirty degrees head up, um, reduces your incidence of um, ventilator associated pneumonia, associated pneumonia um, making sure they have sedation holds, um, making sure that um, are you using subglottic suction, Simon, for all for for every intubation of a COVID positive patient? Yes, we are. Yeah. So subglottic, um, for those who don't know, subglottic suction is a special ICU tube that we use that actually has um, a little hole above the cuff that enables you to um, aspirate any of the um, uh, secretions that are, are sat there. Um, we're using them in theatres now for any potential or suspected COVID patients so that we can aspirate above that cuff before we extubate someone to minimise the sputum that is generated when somebody coughs as they are extubated um, but for ICU patients they actually having that cuff um, there um, enables the reduces the amount of um, uh, of basically um, bugs that come from the upper airway um, and go down into the patient's lungs um, around the cuff because ICU cuffs are different to normal cuffs in that they are designed to um, not damage the trachea because they're there for a long time um, and for that reason, they're, um, they're higher volume, but uh, lower pressure cuffs, but they have little wrinkles in them and um, secretions can trickle through those wrinkles and, and cause an, a pneumonia. So it's important that you use the right endotracheal tube when you intubate because that can make a difference to them. And you don't want to be intubating more than once for all the Abs reasons that we talked about before. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, yep. so running through here, you've also got you're using the slaved process check, sedation lines, analgesia, ventilation, enteral, and DVT. Mm -hmm. That seems a, a good. Uh, these are essentially just checklists. And yeah, to make lots sure that of we're, checklists. Yeah. yeah. The other one that I'm going to put up, which is actually the one I got taught when I started becoming a major trauma consultant, doing ward rounds again after 25 years, mm -hmm. is fast hugs. Is that one you come across yeah. as well? Yeah, we use that as well. Yeah, we use that. Um, now you're going to ask me to remember what fast hug is uh, off my head and I can't. Well, it's I, I it's feeding, <laughs> feeding and the other ones. <laughs> and all the rest, yes. Yeah, so I'll put the list up on there. Um, in all seriousness, though, going back to doing, because our major trauma patients are, are sort of the just below HDU patients, some of them. Yeah. And doing that kind of process I found incredibly valuable. Mm. And 
and I see, you know, quite senior people who've been doing this sort of job for a long period of time, still doing the same because it's a good way of teaching. It's a good way of learning. It's a good way of educating. And it's a good way of communicating what's going on with the rest of the team as well. It's also a good way of not forgetting things because, you know, just because you're senior doesn't mean, in fact, it makes it more likely that you'll forget things. Um, and having a checklist is actually as you said, hugely reassuring because you know that you've remembered everything that the patient needs because these patients do have complex needs and, um, and, and it's easy to forget um, some things if you don't have some kind of checklist to make sure that you're getting everything right. And it's crucial because little things make a big difference when people are this ill. And then you've got a box in here about what happens when things aren't really going to plan. So if you're, and the, the triggers you put in here, and are going to be, again, I think are going to surprise quite a few people because they're, they're not they're not normally physiological. Is sats of less than eighty eight, despite you presumably being up to step three of your um, lung protective ventilation, which is mm. with a peep of fifteen centimeters, so pretty mm-hmm. pretty rock hard stuff. So yeah. sats of less than eighty eight, or, or a pH of less than seven point two, despite the things we've done already, mm. that patient's not well. Oh yeah, no. That I mean, they if you're on 100 percent oxygen um, and you you've got those sort of settings, you're you at this point we would be you know we're then talking about ECMO um, and uh, so yeah, there there there's very little else we can do uh, and they, they these are some some just some suggestions of things you can look at, but we're reaching the end of the road at this point and they, uh, these patients are on the verge of dying if we don't manage to reverse that trend yeah there's a couple of really good tips in there though i think what i'm reading here when i go through you know things like you know getting chest x-ray pneumothorax fine Mm. looking at um renal replacement therapy about negative getting them into more negative balance yeah you know proning them if they haven't done it before fine looking at echo and stuff really these are the patients who you need a consultant intensivist at the bedside absolutely and we will be there there's no 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 doubt about that they i mean uh, our, our our pattern of work is already changing dramatically and i think what what people should be reassured about is that there are there is enough people around to to be able to provide support when these patients get to this this level of um sickness so you know we we are all working together to make this this work so well, i was going to say and i think it's going to be a huge challenge i think people are going to be pushed yeah. but you know it's not you know people actually plan for this sort of thing for an influenza outbreak for many many years yeah so it's not all being made up now no. there are ways and means that we can do this um and people will be scared they'll be worried but you know with the with support we can get through this absolutely yeah. so what would you suggest to people out there now who are thinking gosh you know i'm i might well be the sort of person who's going to be redeployed into a critical care area in the next maybe even as, as little as two to three weeks. What what sort of things would you suggest they should be doing between now and then? Well, I think the simplest things to do is to wonder out to, I mean, if this hasn't happened and I, I've, I knowing what anaesthetists and intensivists are like, and you know that as well as I do, they almost certainly have done this already, but is to familiarise yourself with, with the ventilators that are in your hospital. So uh, for example, in my hospital, we have four or five different types of ventilators. So we've got some ventilators that we use for transferring which are 
based in the ED. We've got Oxalogs, we've got Hamiltons up in the paediatric areas. And then we've obviously got anaesthetic machine ventilators. And then we've got the, the intensive care ventilators. Um, so what we are running is a number of simulation workshops and we're moving those ventilators into areas where people can access them and get training on them. So we're, we're training the intensive care nurses on theatre ventilators because they're a massive source of anxiety for them. Or oh, we're going to have to be using different ventilators that we're not used to. And our intensive, uh, fortunately, we've just had new anaesthetic machines. So they are actually slightly more sophisticated than our uh, original ones. And they actually have pressure support, they have pressure control, and they have volume control, which the other ventilators were just very simple. So, so yes, getting the, uh, finding out where your gaps are. So finding out where, where people's anxieties lie and providing them with training and cascading that. So go and find out where your ventilators are, what where they're going to be sighted, where you're most likely to work, be working, and get yourself get, get to know that ventilator. Um, that won't take you very long. Go and grab an anaesthetist or an intensivist to come to go through that with you. But that look, should all be organized by by your hospital. And if it isn't happening then then you need to talk to someone higher up and say, please can you organise this for us? Certainly in Virchester, that's happening now. Yeah. And the the critical care teams are being very proactive in doing this. I think I've been very impressed with critical care anesthesia, actually, about realising what's coming mm-hmm. and being very, very, very keen and very proactive and very capable about getting that training out there. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it should be it should be done for that. But, you know, don't be don't be too worried about it. Just go along to the training and learn. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's an opportunity to learn about something that you have never experienced before, but we're all in the same boat and we're all um, here to, to help. So that training will be accessible. Definitely. The other, the other things you need to learn is how to prone people because that's, it just, it's the first time you do it, it seems very complex. And then once you've done it a few times, it's, it runs a lot more smoothly. It's just taking all the monitoring off the front and sticking it on the back and things like that. So, but but that's simple to organize and and um, intensive care nurses are very happy to, to to run workshops on that. Okay, so we'll come towards the end. This is a much longer podcast than we normally do, but these Sorry. are no, don't apologise. <laughs> it's great stuff. It's um, you know, these are crazy and weird times that we're in at the moment, and we're definitely ramping up in Virchester. And some of the cases are truly, truly scary, actually, mm-hmm. but many aren't, and we've got to keep that in perspective. And most of us, if not all of us, are going to get through this okay. And I try and end with a positive note with all of the COVID stuff because he can sort of end up in a bit of a hole and think that it's all terrible. But let's face it, number one, most people are going to be fine. Mm. And certainly the healthcare workers, even if you get sick, you're probably going to be fine. Although sadly, there will be a very small number of people who are not. But most of you are going to be absolutely fine. Number two, you're doing an amazing job. This is something which is going to be hugely respected. And it's what we trained for. It's a really, you know, it's... For those of us particularly who work around emergency care and acute care, this is kind of the pinnacle of potentially for our careers about doing something really incredibly important and pulling together. Yeah. And finally, we've got a job. We've got a job. We're not facing unemployment. We're not facing um, difficulty from funds and stuff like that. And we're being valued and respected for doing so. So in the midst of all this anxiety, this worry, and these difficulties that we are genuinely going to face, you've got to remember that you're doing a good job. And you're doing a worthwhile thing and we'll come out the other end of it. Can I say one last thing is that the one anxiety that I've come across a lot in my colleagues, my anaesthetic colleagues, is making those decisions about who to ventilate and who not to ventilate. 
And that is very much the remit of the intensive care consultants. And those are the, we will be making those decisions. That is not something that we would be expecting people who don't normally do those kind of decision-making things to do. So I want to reassure people that that they are not going to be put in that position. Yeah, and, and like you, I get involved in those decisions and they are very difficult. And even mm. ourselves, we don't make them independently. No, we absolutely. always always get somebody else to, to come and talk to us. And there is actually quite a bit of literature knocking around now coming out of um, certainly the US and a little bit of coming out of Italy as well, that during these episodes, we may actually get a degree of independence in some of those decisions because it's so difficult to make those decisions regularly that a degree of a, a sort of a quasi ethics committee is being formatted so that people can get rapid advice with a degree of independence. And I think going forward, that might be an innovation that we see for future pandemics. But yeah, as a junior junior doctor, as a junior nurse who's been deployed into intensive care, that is not going to be your place. No, absolutely not. And I want people to to feel reassured that that, that is a decision they're not going to have to make. So let's end. Let's end okay. on a positive note. I'm really interested in how this is going to go. I think we are going to see absolutely the best of people over the next few months. And that's going to be something marvellous to see. I think there will be tough times, but we'll come out the other end. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your ideas. We'll put up this stuff on the website from yourself. I've got also got stuff from Helge Johansson in Imperial, and I'll put links up to a number of other resources, such as Scott Weingart's stuff on how to get a basics of doing a ventilator, First EM, Broom Docs. There's a whole bunch of stuff out there, which if you are interested in doing some individual training now, mm. I strongly recommend you have a look at. Just be careful that you're not following a guideline which doesn't apply to the UK if you're working in the UK or vice versa. There will be subtle differences between health economies, but get out there, do some learning. We'll see you on the other side. Goodbye. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Simon.